Welcome back, everyone, to Bringing Down the House. We thank you so much for joining us again. We are going to jump right back into our interview with Lauren Johnson, the Director of Communications and Community Outreach at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund on our conversation of redlining. Was there ever a situation where someone could find themselves maybe crossing out of their zone? So maybe I was... I was, I ended up in the red zone, but could I maybe move to the yellow zone? You know, maybe, you know, maybe work my way up the food chain a little bit. Was that ever a possibility? Well, that's a, that's a great question again. And it brings up another aspect of um, what was going on at the time, really barring people of color from living where they wanted to live. And that is that oftentimes, I mean, if you were black and you lived in a red zone, you could not really move out of that red zone because the other properties around you uh, that were classified to be, you know, um, blue or green, and sometimes even in those yellow areas, specifically said, no person um, of color can ever buy or inhabit this home. And so because of those clauses, and we actually call them racially restrictive covenants, um, that's actually kind of what deemed the green areas to be green. Because the green areas, of course, are the areas that were seen to be the lowest risk. And as we go into the descriptions, we see they're not only talking about risk of the federally backed home loan being paid back, but risk of this quote unquote hazardous infiltration um, of, of hazardous populations. And so in these green areas, that's where you saw quite a lot of these racially restrictive covenants and deeds ensuring and putting in writing that no person of color could ever buy this home. Yeah, everything you're saying, it just every time I hear it, it blows me away. And I think that's what I felt when I went to uh, to that exhibit that you guys had uh, the first time was just I, I knew it was a problem. But when you really start to to really listen to this and you think about all the layering effects and all this that that comes from this, it's just so overwhelmingly sad, I think, is what I feel. Um, and, and just disappointed, I think, in the human race, <laughs> really. Um, but I think because when you're talking, you, you think about, well, how, how does this ever change? How does this ever, you know, how does a new story ever start to be told in, in many ways? And, and you know, then the other piece of it is, is that we layer on then all the other complexities of life and some of the, the issues that Waterloo has gone through, um, you know, through no fault really technically of its own in the, in the 1980s in the farm crisis and lost a huge percentage of Waterloo's population at that time and neighborhoods around downtown in particular, um, you know, really were vacated in so many ways. And, you know, even uh, Church Row, where it was B1, I believe, on the, on the 1940s redlining map, um, you know, it, you know, now that's in the, in the 1980s, that's where a lot of the families vacated uh, because they lost their jobs with deer or rat packing or what have you and had to move out of the area. And then, you know, the neighborhoods, of course, on the, on the east and northeast side um, also, you know, had significant challenges due to, to some of those factors. So you layer in, you know, the policies, but then also just the normal things that happen in, in life and the world and, and different things. Um, you know, and, and it just feels like, how do you ever get out of this, this cycle? Yeah, and that's why every community needs to address it individually. 
right? There, there are, you know, there may be funding mechanisms and things of that sort, um, different programs that can come out from the federal government or state governments to, you know, address especially the disparities in home ownership between our white and black populations. But as far as the real neighborhood, neighborhood development work that needs to be done and for things to be addressed on a neighborhood, almost a street by street basis, that's why it's so important for the community to come together to really find that solution and to take into account, of course, not just the history of redlining, but the history of the community and the just like the many things that you stated specific to Waterloo. Um, and so, you know, that that kind of brings me to why we advocate for having a community driven response to this. So oftentimes, you know, at a kind of city government level or whatever entity it may be um, who are looking to start off a new community development project or an investment project, you know, we see community involvement and input um, from the, the residents as kind of a box to check in, in way of doing a project. But rather than seeing it um, as a box to check, seeing it as an opportunity to really broaden this perspective and most importantly, better understand what people actually want. You know, um, maybe it's as simple as renovating the, the parks in that area. So for example, we had a conversation with somebody from uh, who is actually the president of her neighborhood association. And we're having all of these grand plans about um, things that we could do or ways we could invest uh, to, to address this history. She said, you know, we just want some new lights over the basketball court in, in our neighborhood park. That would be a great start. And we go, wow, you know, sometimes the so solutions, I mean, not that that solves the entire issue, but sometimes the desires of the community um, are much different. And you really have to take that into account um, to begin to address these issues, I think. I think you're exactly right on that. Uh, and I, I, I love how it's something as simple as lights. You know, well, we don't want the kids playing basketball in the dark. So can you can we get some lights in the in, in this park or in this neighborhood? Uh, and I, I love hearing that the progress that you are finding with communities. But while we talk about the progress, what pushback are you getting in your efforts of uh, reversing these effects of redlining that has happened some you know century ago now. Yeah, so we've been pretty fortunate in that you know we uh, the the history that we've really unearthed here has been specific to Des Moines, and as far as the nonprofit community in Des Moines goes, everybody has been very open to learning about all of this, and so we've been very very fortunate in that because you could imagine some situations in in which folks really um, kind of shut down when this this kind of information is presented, but it has gone as far as to having really intense discussions with um, some bankers. And I say some, and I actually mean a couple of hundred bankers that we've had to, or we've had the opportunity to present this information to and discuss with. And, you know, for the most part, things are, you know, people are very open to learning. It's, I think, when you get to the next steps of how we reinvest in a more equitable way that we could maybe have a couple of more roadblocks, but hoping that people are as open to that conversation as they have been to this one. 
So what kinds of, I think that's a really good point. What kinds of um, barriers are you finding or would you anticipate, I guess, with, you know, when you pull together the lenders and you pull together, you know, other partners and, and city representatives, um, which I, I really believe truly everybody wants to do the right thing. You know, once you've been um, informed about all of this and you're educated about all of this, I really do believe that you know, the, the good in people that people really want to do the right things here. What do you feel like are the barriers that are natural barriers that, you know, folks in those leadership positions or just, you know, in our, you know, um, you know, for-profit partners and things like that, what, what kind of barriers are they facing to moving forward and making some better policies and new decisions? Well, one thing that I think could be seen as a barrier, but kind of goes back to um, what you were talking about just a little bit ago with me the many other things that have happened in Waterloo over you know the century, right? So think, look at where we're at now with uh, the coronavirus and how that has economically affected so many people and how much it's affected our housing sphere. And so I think the biggest barrier um, from my perspective over the last couple of months will be continuing to see this as a priority going forward and making sure that um, local decision makers and elected leaders see this as a priority in their decision making, not just for a few months, but um, in, in their everyday life and in their everyday votes and decisions. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I do think that, you know, we have some realities in society too that we live in that, you know, businesses are businesses and they need to, to look at the bottom line. And I know that that, to me, I feel like that's what I've seen as a factor. Um, you know, I'm not going to speak for the realtors because I, I am not one. And I, and I have some really good friends and, and partners that are realtors and, and a lot, most of them are really good. But I also think, you know, why would a realtor make a decision to steer someone in one community or another? And I think that there's probably some true business answer to that potentially of, you know, well, the, the property values in Cedar Falls are higher. It's easier to sell homes there or what have you. This, this may be an easier uh, thing and, I, and it may be a better bottom line decision at the end of the day. Banks could be in the same situation where, you know, it's, it's riskier to lend to, you know, buyers that are, you know, meeting lower, you know, credit scores and, and have riskier situations. Um, so I think that there has to be, you know, it, it's, it's easy just to ask them to take the risk, you know, well, you just need to take the risk, you need to do the right thing. And I think that's, that's nice and kind of, you know, a little bit pie in the sky, too. So I do think that our challenge is going to be to try to figure out how to um, work together in a way to help folks see kind of what their own barriers may be, or why they're, why they're steering the way they are, or why they're afraid to, you know, kind of stick their necks out there. Maybe there's ways that through partnership, you know, things could, um, things could evolve in a, in a healthier way, you know, in this community. Well, and on top of all of this, we're still dealing with a lot of implicit bias as well. I mean, you know, we're having this conversation in Iowa <laughs> and our state is pretty darn white. I'm saying that as a white person. Um, and so, I mean, at least we've, we have transitioned 
from the explicit bias that we were dealing with in the 1930s and 40s, but now we're dealing with the quieter implicit bias that really um, can cannot be understated when we're talking about all of this. And I, and that's why I say keeping this a priority, I think might be um, one of the, the challenges that we face going forward. But of course, there's still a whole lot of racism in this country and um, we're, we're gonna have to work hard and work often to address that. Lauren, my thing is this, okay? I, you know, we are, um, special in this situation because you know, this is something that Ali deals with. This is something you deal with professionally. Uh, you know, I, I, I've researched the topic, things like this, but redlining is not, I, I think, a buzzword for many people in the sense that they know what it means, okay? So we, we can sit here and have a you know, wonderful conversation on the history and the effects, but when we look at, you know, the average person who just probably may have learned of this term listening to this podcast, what am I supposed to do to fix it or to help with that situation? How, how can I help uh, this issue of redlining or the effects of redlining? Absolutely. I think that what, what anyone can do is become more involved, whether it be at a city or even a neighborhood level, to have a vested interest in how your community is developing. What kind of projects are being approved or disapproved? You know, you guys know very well that in the affordable housing world, we talk about the not in my backyard or the nimbyism quite a lot. Um, but oftentimes we don't have the, the same level of vocality on the other side of that, right? So, so voicing support for projects and voicing support for initiatives. And, you know, if, if there's a situation in which say uh, your city is investing in one area and you say, hey, well, why can't we direct those funds to this initiative? Speak up about that and be vocal um, in support of what you believe in, because so so many times uh, the most vocal uh, the most vocal thing that we have in those city meetings um, is opposition. And so let's go and voice support for some of these initiatives. I think that's really important. Um, as well as learning more, there's actually a website that anyone can go to. It's called undesigneddsm.com. And that is a website that the trust fund created to really store all of this information. It has videos, it has our presentation um, that we've been giving over the last 10 or so months, I lose track in 2020. Um, and it also has a lot of books that you can read, podcasts that you can listen to, and things of that sort to really dive into this history. That's fantastic, Lauren. Um, and, and I think um, one more question that I have, I guess, is you know what you believe about Habitat's role um, in the reversal of redlining and how, how Habitat is helping um, with that specifically, you know, through our home home buyer uh, programming, through the owner occupant own, owner occupied critical home repairs, but also neighborhood revitalization. You know, we are a holistic uh, habitat affiliate here with Iowa Heartland, and really do uh, buy in completely to holistic neighborhood, you know, uh, revitalization efforts, asset based community development. Um, you know, we've served 175 families through single family home ownership. 50% of those, nearly 50% of those are African-American. Um, you know, we, we tend, I mean, I feel like we go in and invest exactly 
play in the places where people don't, but I would love to hear your, your take on what you think about Habitat's role. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say we are just all so grateful um, for all, all that you do because Habitat really is a key part of the solution in a lot of these neighborhoods. And how I see it just simply is really providing home ownership opportunities to folks who may not have otherwise had that opportunity. And it's really about the opportunity to build equity and build wealth. And since so many people were um, purposefully cut off from that opportunity, um, it's really important that we start providing those opportunities to folks that don't have, you know, uh, three generations prior to them that were homeowners and were able to build that wealth, but to give that opportunity to start that, you know, not to be corny, but to start that American dream to people who wouldn't have otherwise been able to do so. And that is so important. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, um, you know, as I, as I've learned more and more about redlining and about our community and all of that, I actually created our own map um, of projects where we have invested, you know, in the last 30 years in Waterloo and, um, and Cedar Falls. And I was floored because the places where we've invested most are the areas that were, that were redlined. And so I guess um, I was like thankful for that <laughs> as a, as a um, reaction, but now just armed with this information, you know, I want to do everything that I can. And I know our staff does and our board and, and all of our supporters to be more proactive um, and advocating for better policies, you know, going forward. Um, but I also just kind of wanted to see if there was anything else, um, you know, that we didn't ask you specifically about, but your, but your, you know, your exhibit is so interesting and maybe you could tell folks a little bit about this whole project and, and uh, what your findings have been in general. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that. I'd be happy to. So we started to get involved with this project called Undesign the Red Line, or I should say exhibit called Undesign the Red Line in April of 2019. And it's actually an exhibit that was created by a social impact firm out of New York City called Designing the We. And they have put this exhibit up in many cities around the country, some as big as, you know, Los Angeles and New York. And they've also put it up in Omaha, you know, just our neighbors over there to the west. And so they put up two iterations of the exhibit. The first is what's called a pop-up exhibit. And that's just kind of a general overview of the history of redlining in the United States. And then they provide an opportunity to work with them a little bit further and dive into the research and, or I should say, conduct the research that's necessary to better understand how it impacted your local community. And so that's what we at the Polk County Housing Trust Fund did from April until the end of 2019. Um, we were then able to unveil the exhibit in January of 2020. And we had, you know, in the about month or two that it was open prior to shutting down for COVID-19, we were able to have over 1,200 people come through that exhibit. Um, of course, we had to change our plans up quite a bit come March 15th. And so we started providing these tours online via Zoom. Um, and so we did that about April through September, October. And then we actually have just finished up shooting and filming or editing, writing, shooting, all of that, our team uh, made a five-part video series that is available on undesigndsm.com. It's also available on our YouTube and Facebook pages, Polk County Housing Trust Fund. And that's a really, really in-depth look to this history because 
our director of research and planning actually wrote her master's thesis at Iowa State on this topic specifically of redlining in Des Moines. So there's a whole lot of information there. It's a five-part series. It may take a while to get through, um, but if you really want a comprehensive look at redlining nationally and in the city of Des Moines specifically, that's a great resource. Awesome, and I, I would I would say yes. I mean, um, knowing that all this is that you you've put into with work and everything is uh, specific to Des Moines, but I think that what I've learned through this is that the concepts are transferable to a lot of different communities, and and that's really um, really the idea there. That that's what I really learned so much is that I I mean, no matter if you're from Des Moines or not, it, you know, folks from our community could watch that video series and really get some ideas around. You know what we can do in our local local community yeah and there's a lot of information in there as well about the history of the great migration in iowa and how this all kind of took place um and you know not as specific to housing but there are some really interesting and by interesting i mean terrible um policies that were passed by the iowa legislature at that time and so i think it's really good for any iowan to really take the time to to look at that history and better understand it. And if I'm remembering correctly, I believe that's video three that really goes through that that statewide history um, of the great migration here to Iowa. Well, I, I know what I'm gonna be doing uh, for, for the next couple of days. Uh, it sounds so just interesting and thought provoking. And you know, what a great conversation. Uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, Lauren Johnson, the Director of Communications and Community Outreach from the Polk County Housing Trust Fund. Uh, you know, Ali, we keep getting all these like these professionals with all these degrees and everything. And I'm over here like, hi, I think I know my first name. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Uh, I know I'm like one step maybe above that. Like, <laughs> I mean, come on now. She's over here just like spouting out knowledge. I'm like, Lauren, okay. I know. She's awesome. She is so awesome. I was so impressed with with their team uh, when uh, when I had when I went to that and saw that exhibit. So just really, really thankful. Yeah, yeah. super thankful. Now I just have to do this because in reading your bio, uh, something really stuck out. And this is not at all to uh, demean anything that you've done, but you have two bachelor's degrees. I do. One is in political science, but the other is in music. It is. So I actually, yeah, I, I got two degrees and the, the music one is actually why, so I went to school in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm from central Iowa, Iowa originally, but um, actually got a scholarship to play jazz bass down in Charleston, South Carolina. So I had to take that opportunity and run with it and then picked up another one in political science while I was down there. I love fun. Did you hear that? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I got a music degree in jazz bass, and then I just I decided to pick up a political science degree. No big deal. All right. Good Lord. Well, let's see. Uh, if, That's awesome. Let's see if we can put the the political science and the the jazz bass degree uh, to the test here with uh, some trivia. Yes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome back our wonderful marketing person, Nora. Hi, Nora. Hi, how's it going? Oh, it's good. It's it's going great, Nora. Uh, you know, Allie, here's the thing. Like, I think I did, we did pretty well. We've been doing, we've, we've been 
we had a little is- issue with the last one and the whole whatever what was it macaroni thing or whatever that was the noodle I know I, I I I'm not no 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 I'm I'm this is the redemption question here yeah oh definitely so, well, we we are in need of a redemption after last time <laughs> we are we are and Lauren you're gonna play with us in this correct I am all right here we go so Nora what's a question all right so this is a question but I will give a little hint maybe I'll it'll help you out but the question first is that. With the holidays coming up, many people have the tradition of making a gingerbread house with their family. And so I want to know if you guys can tell me the square footage of the largest gingerbread house that has ever been made. <laughs> oh. Who's that? Who's that? No. No, I refuse. I refuse to answer this question. Who is going to sit here and know the square footage? No, that's ridiculous. Uh, no, you have to play. You have to. This was, this was not in my contract. That, this was not in my contract that I signed, even though I didn't sign one. I will give you a little hint. So it is bigger than the houses that we, on average, make. So our square footage of our houses are 1,070 square feet on average, maybe a little bit bigger. So this is actually bigger than that. Wow. Like a few thousand square feet bigger or not that many? <laughs> now that's cheating. That's <laughs> cheating. <laughs> okay, that's Lauren. The political science degree coming out right there. <laughs> okay, Lauren, use some of your jazz bass and dial up uh, a first guess. <laughs> um, Okay, I, I'll go. So do, do we just answer s- separately and then see where we land? Okay, yep. I'm going to go with 1,800 square feet. Ooh, nice round number. I like it. I was thinking this whole time 2,000. I'm going to go for 2,000. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm on the episode of The Price is Right. Like. <laughs> I bid one dollar. Is that an option? Like, what is this? <laughs> the closest with not going over? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I am so. If people could see me right now and the fumes coming out of my ears, uh, I'm just gonna say well, I'm just, we're just gonna keep going up. Uh, I'm gonna say twenty five hundred. Ooh. Jacqueline has done it again. It is two thousand five hundred and twenty. <laughs> What? what? No, no. <laughs> Man, look I'm gonna have to this up in a little bit because I want to. I am so proud of myself. Here's the thing: I don't have much. Listen, I don't have much going for me. So, like you know, these things are like when I get this win, this is like a big deal for me here. <laughs> I love I love it when you reference all of your high school teachers that are so proud of you now and mom. Well, they might not be after that, but you know it's fine. Uh, Nora, where is this gingerbread house located? Well, it was in Texas, and it won a Guinness World Record um, from Bryan, Texas, and it was built in 2013. Ah, Nora, I love this. I love how topical you are. It's a perfect question for uh, the holiday season. So it's awesome. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, at, I'm at a loss. Is it still standing? Can I go visit it? I mean, I might as well at this point. So, but you can see, um, I believe it's either a video or a time lapse of it being made. So Ooh, you can go to Guinness World Records and check it out. 
Sweet. All right. Well, that that really does go with the whole everything is bigger in Texas, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and on and on that cheesy joke, ladies and gentlemen, I think that is where we will wrap up our time. Again, I want to give a, a big thank you again to Lauren Johnson, uh, just for the outstanding uh, information and knowledge that you have provided to us today. Uh, this, is, this is some great information and and just great things to have. And I, I'm, I'm really happy that we're able to uh, provide people uh, with this uh, information and these resources. So uh, thank you so much for joining us again, ladies and gentlemen, here on Bringing Down the House, Gingerbread House, maybe, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I'm Ja'Kalen Vadison, here with Allie Parrish. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you back here at the same place you found us next time. Thank you. Thank you.